What an amazing story that is. And uh, yeah, I think we should clap for that one again, just because I need to. get that out. We love those kinds of stories, and, and Chalice's family are here, and, and so we're really grateful to them, and, uh, and they're, they're more powerful than, than only an amazing story, but we love those stories. And what's strange about the way that we tell those stories in, that church, in the church is that we're still surprised by them. That, that when we hear these stories of people coming from absolutely desperate experiences, from, from places of being absolutely, completely far from God, and then God grabbing a hold of them and not letting go, and, and them turning to Jesus and becoming something different than they ever imagined that they could ever be, we are still surprised. And what I want to submit to you today is that we ought not to be surprised by that because that is what God has always been in the habit of doing. These are the kinds of stories that God loves to tell over and over and over again of people who have been far from him, who have been lost, who have been in dangerous straits, and he redeems them. One of the most influential stories kind of on my ministry life isn't one of the more famous Bible stories, but it's this little story that comes from, uh, from 1 Samuel chapter 23, it's 22, it starts here. Now... This is a story of, about David, and it's at a specific point in David's life, and it starts here. It says, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam, and his brothers heard, as well as his father's household, and they came down to him there. And every person in trouble, every person in debt, and every person who was embittered gathered round him, and he became their captain. About 400 men were with him. Now, this is at a very specific point in the life of David. This is the, the beginning of the second act of David's life. If you're new and don't know anything about the Bible, David is the giant killer guy. But, like, but the giant killer stuff happens in, in the first act of David's life. The first act of David's life is boy, wonder, giant killer. And then the, the second act of David's David's life is as an outlaw revolutionary on the run from the king of Israel at the time who was Saul. And then the third act of David's life is as king over Israel. Okay, so this is at the beginning of the second act of David's life. And what's interesting about this time in David's life is he had been the, the most famous person in the kingdom, the most adored person in the kingdom, the, the greatest warrior in the kingdom. He was on his way, an ascendant in the palace. Everyone loved him. If you could imagine like some combination of like Justin Bieber and Connor McDavid, that was, that was David at the time. He was a musician. He was an athlete. He was the, the teen wonder. He was everything that you could possibly imagine. And over the course of time, all of that is stolen from him and stripped away. And by the time we meet David at this point in his life, he doesn't even have a sword. He's had to go and ask someone, in a, one of the priests, to give him Goliath's old sword because he doesn't have one of his own. He's thinking of going to the Philistines and spending time with them in order to be on the run from Saul. Everything in David's life has been stripped away from him at this point. And it's at this point that he ends up in Gath, he escapes to the wilderness. And what's fascinating about this time is that not only do his family gather around him, but also every person in trouble, 
every person in debt and every person who was embittered gathered around him. The, the, the Hebrew, this, this is actually a very good translation, but, but the Hebrew words that we're talking about here are, are, are scared and, and, and in debt, like literally owing people money and, and, and bitter or angry. That's what we're pointing to here. And what David ends up with around him at this moment in his life is not like a bunch of superstars, but rather he gets every person from the kingdom who leaves the empire and says, there is nothing for me here. I'm gonna go be in the wilderness with David. These are not people of means. These are not people who are extraordinary. These are not people with a whole bunch of things going for them. This is the scared and the angry and in debt. And they gather around David at this time. But what's interesting about following the life of David is by the time we get to the end of the second act, we get to about 2 Samuel chapter 23, and this is when David is starting to be king in Israel, and we find out about all of these people that gather around David. If we could go to the next one, that we find this list of David's mighty warriors, and there's all of these names, and I'm not going to read them all out to you because some of them are hard to pronounce, and you might... uh, think that there was some mystery about here, but, um, but these are just all of these 37 names of these mighty warriors of David, and these guys do some amazing things. Most of the amazing things that they do involve killing large groups of enemy people, so we don't want to emulate them too much, but Shammah is very fascinating because the Bible specifically says that he was attacked by hundreds of people in a lentil field, and he made his stand in a field of lentils, which is a weird bit of specificity. Like, I don't know what was special about those lentils, but he definitely murdered a bunch of Philistines to protect those lentils. We have, uh, we have, uh, there was three guys that just went to get David a drink of water in a well that the Philistines had. They had to kill many people to get that water, and then David didn't drink it. It's a weird story, but it's like, this fascinating, amazing group of people. And then, and then there's Benaiah. Once you get down to there, Benaiah is fascinating because the Bible tells like three or four different stories about him that are all very violent and very weird. He like climbs down into a pit to fight a lion on a snowy day. It's an odd bit of behavior like that. The lion's in the pit. You could just leave it there. Um, it also said, the Bible does something very fascinating where it, where it also says that he, he, he fought an Egyptian and killed him. And then the Bible adds this bit of detail that he was a very handsome man, which is like, I don't know why we needed that. But there's all of these amazing people, 37 warriors that follow David, and these become the people who protect the kingdom, who expand the empire, who bring peace and order to their people. And I started wondering, and the way that I got to this story was starting here. I was like, who are these guys? And I kept going back, and I'm like, where did he get them? Where did he find them? Where did he find these mighty warriors? And the only place that you get to, the only place where these warriors joined him was here in the cave at Adulam. Go to the next one, please. At the cave of Adulam, every person who was in debt and every person in trouble and every person who was embittered, that's where these guys came from. David didn't go on Indeed later on after this and be like, I need some mighty warriors. Please submit some resumes of the animals that you have killed in pits and the various handsomeness of degrees of of people that you have. That's not what he did. 
David didn't go out and choose the best. These people were transformed over the course of their time to be from people who were scared and angry and in debt, who had nothing to offer, who wanted nothing to do with the kingdom, to then eventually becoming people whose lives benefited in peace and hope for the entire nation. That's what God did. And if we're surprised by that, again, I'm gonna submit to you that we ought not to be because that is what God is continually in the pattern of doing. We see this all over scripture, but if we get to the people of Israel, if we can go to the next one, please. When God calls the people of Israel out of slavery, he doesn't choose the most powerful nation on the earth. He could have chosen the Egyptians for that, right? Instead, he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them, and he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and great strength to drive you before nations greater and stronger than you and bring you into the land and give it to you for your inheritance as it is today. He didn't choose the people of Israel because they were so all-fired awesome. He chose them because they were not, because they were small, because they were insignificant, and he said, I am going to drive you into, this, into the face of nations stronger than you, and I'm going to give you victory. God chose to do that. Can we go to the next slide? <laughs> Even in the story of David, that was just dry cough. I've had COVID two weeks ago. I'm good. In case you were wondering. We're very safe in here. Um, <laughs> we see this in David's selection out of his brothers. David wasn't if David was gonna be the, the true superstar, he would have been the oldest of his family. Instead, he was the eighth. And when Samuel the prophet came to see David's dad and said, one of your sons is going to be anointed, bring me all your sons, David's dad didn't even bother calling him back from the field. That's how insignificant David was. And instead, and ultimately, David becomes the most power, the anointed one of God, the man after God's own heart. God chose him specifically the last, the runt of the litter, and said, no, this is the one I'm going to choose. We can go to the next one. This continues in the New Testament. Paul reminds his people of this in 1 Corinthians. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. When God started to move in the city of Corinth. He didn't get the mayor and he didn't get the famous athlete and he didn't get the richest person there. He drew from the slaves, from the immigrants, from the refugees, from the people who were poor and he said, this is the church, this is the foundation upon which I'm going to build my church. On top of the foundation of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the word, these are the people who I am going to build my kingdom out of. That is what he chose to do. Peter says the same thing. As, he, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And he says again at, at another point in the same passage that, that you were not a people, but now you are a people. You were once on the outside, you were once outcasts, but now you're brought into the inside. That is what God is in the habit and the business of doing. So when we come across a passage, like we see in first, <coughs> excuse me, like we see in first Samuel, that David left Gath and comes to the cave of Adullam, we ought not to be surprised that God brings and surrounds him with people who are embittered, who are angry, deep in their soul 
who are disappointed at themselves and the world around them, who are in debt, who have taken more than they've given, both literally and metaphorically. They owe the world so much and they can't possibly pay it back and who are in trouble, who are deeply, deeply scared and confused by the world around them. We ought not to be surprised that that is who God chooses to be the group that he forms to rescue the kingdom and to participate in that. So the challenge that I got fascinated with, and I hope that you're fascinated with as well, is what happened to turn these people who were scared, angry, and in debt, and I know that we live in Edmonton, so it's impossible to imagine anyone who is in debt or scared or angry, right? Like you don't, you obviously don't encounter anyone like that ever as you drive in traffic, right? How How do people do that? Because if you're like me, you want to do that too, right? How do these people do that? Well, there's a couple of steps involved. There's what brought them to the wilderness at Adulam, and there's a second part, which is what they found at the wilderness at Adulam. And I'm going to cover just briefly in the time that we've got left, I'm going to cover uh, what brought them to the cave at Adulam and the first thing that they found when they got there. Maybe the second if we have enough time, but we're doing this next week, so you got to come back and let me finish, and then we'll figure out everything next week. (laughs) Everything will be figured out. So the first thing that gets them to the cave is they have to admit to themselves that they are scared and angry and in debt. They have to admit that there is nothing that is working for them in the world of Saul. There is nothing working for them in the empire of Israel that we, they have to willingly turn their back on that and go out into the wilderness. And that is what we have to do as well. At some point, and if you heard Chalice's story, you just heard that, at some point Chalice decided, my life is not going anywhere with me in charge of it. I need to get out of this kingdom that I have built and I need to get into the wilderness where I can be transformed into something that is better for myself and for the people around me. Every one of us as followers of Jesus has to get to that point where we recognize, not that like, well, all those other people, they might be scared and angry and and in debt, but look at me, look at all the things that I have to offer. We need to get to the point where we're willing to admit to ourselves, no, I've actually made a mess. The things that I've been in charge of haven't gone the way I wanted to. And if I'm actually honest with myself in the darkest, quietest places of my soul, I'm just as scared and angry and in debt as the next person. And can I be honest with you about my biggest fear for this congregation? Not just the people in this room, but also for just Christians in general in North America. My biggest fear for you isn't that we're going to become so liberal that we're going to just decide that any, anything anyone does is going to be good and we don't have any standards for sin anymore. And we, that's not my biggest fear. My biggest fear is that we are going to stand in a place as Christians where we say, like, look at how awesome I am. I have so much to offer the world. Look at these poor fools. And we're going to be like the people who stayed in Saul's kingdom and said, like, I'm not scared and angry and in debt. Things are working pretty well for me here. Why would I ever go to the wilderness? 
My biggest fear for us as followers of Jesus is not that we're going to be like the, like the younger brother in the story of the prodigal son, the one who goes off and wastes all his money on wild living and, and, and ends up destitute in a, in, a, in, a, in a pig pen. That's not what I'm worried about for most of us. What I'm worried about for most of us is that we're gonna be like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son who stays and experiences none of the joy of what the father has to offer. And when the, the, the younger brother who is scared and angry and in debt realizes it, runs into his father's arms and says, I have nothing to offer, but can you please let me live as a servant, that we, like the older brother, will stand aside and be like, I can't be happy for him because I feel like God hasn't recognized how awesome I am. The biggest danger, I think, is not that we're going to get caught up in the wild living in the world, but that we're going to get caught up in thinking that we're so amazing and awesome that we're not going to realize how scared and angry and in debt that we are. And we're going to miss out on the Father's joy because we're caught up and stuck in, in our high opinion of ourselves and our own morality. It's the biggest danger that we've got. So the first thing that happens for them to be transformed from these people who are scared and angry and in debt into mighty warriors is that they have to admit that they're scared and angry and in debt. And if you're in a place where you're like, but I'm not, I'm doing pretty great. Maybe you're not. <laughs> Maybe you're not. But we get to this point and they find themselves in the cave what do they find here that transforms them? Well, the first thing they find is that they're around a bunch of people who are in the same position that they are. A bunch of people who have admitted that like, yeah, I'm scared too, I'm angry too, I'm in debt too, I don't have anything to offer either. And in addition to that, they also find the brothers of David and his, all his father's household. Now, this is the hope I have for you people that are like, I'm not scared, angry, and in debt anymore. I'm not that. There's another role that we have. Because there's this other group of people, David's brothers and his father's household, that when they saw that David had gone to the wilderness, that there was no room for David in the kingdom of Israel anymore, that it wasn't working for him anymore, that he was going to be in pain and excluded if he were in there anymore, a group of, uh, of his family said, you know what, if it's not good enough for him, it's not good enough for us either. We're going to the wilderness too because we're not going to stand here with all of these people who think that they got everything right all the time. We're gonna go and we're gonna be with the people who are scared and angry and in debt. Because even if we're not now, we used to be, and we remember what it was like. And if there's no room for our brother in this kingdom, then there's no room for us either. If we can go to the next slide. The things that they found in the cave that transformed them, the first thing that they found was family. David's brothers had lives, they had jobs, they had lands. They had everything that the world tells you that you need in the kingdom of Saul. And the only thing that they had to do to keep it was to reject their brother. And in the middle of that, they said no. And can I just give us some advice, church? If we're going to be the kind of community, of family that 
that helps people genuinely transform from lives of chaos to lives of giving, from, from, from taking and destroying the people around them to giving and building and protecting the people around them. We've got to be people that make room and want to live amongst people who are scared and angry and in debt too. Far too many of us as followers of Jesus find ourselves in this place where we, we, we recognize that we're scared and angry and in debt. We, get, we start to get ourselves a little bit better and it's like, well, I don't want to be around those people anymore. I'm going to go where everybody like dresses nice and looks good, right? I want to be around the happy people, the famous people, the wealthy people. It's not what God has called us to and it's not ultimately what transforms what God has called us to is to continue to be family for those people who are still scared and angry and in debt and need that transformation that we've experienced as well. The first thing that they found was family. And if, you are, if you're in that position where you find yourself in the wilderness this morning, the first thing that you need to do is find a group of people that can walk with you. Having been there, the worst part of living a chaotic life is the loneliness of it. Even if you're surrounded by people all the time who are in the exact same position you are, it's still incredibly lonely. You feel like no one is actually seeing you in the midst of this, that you're disappeared somehow, and that if you were to disappear even further that no one would notice. We, as the people of God who have been slightly moved further down this path of transformation, we need to be the family that sees the people who are scared and angry and in debt and isn't scared off by them, but recognizes them as brothers and sisters and future mighty warriors if God gets a hold of them and does what he wants to do. The second thing that they find and I'm only gonna do two. The second thing that they find is leadership. This is fascinating. If we go back to the first Samuel part, it says that they, they gathered in the cave, everyone who was scared and his family came, and then everyone who was scared and, every, and in debt came, and then David became their captain, is the easiest way to translate it. We need to find a direction to go. And what, we, what they found in David was someone who was going to lead them well, who was going to sacrifice for them, who was going to stand with them. And I'm going to submit to you that in addition to this, if you're like, but does this church have that kind of leadership? Well, I can tell you for sure that yes, we do, not because I'm awesome or because Darian is awesome or because Martin is awesome or because Spencer is awesome or because Jocelyn is, uh, sorry, Joy is, is awesome. Jocelyn is awesome too, but she's on mat leave. Um, Joy is awesome, or because Kat is awesome, uh, or because Erica and Alex are awesome, even though all those people are awesome. We follow Jesus. So if you're asking, do we have the kind of leadership that is going to allow people to transform? Yes, it does, because we follow Jesus. And if it ever gets to the point where it's like, I think Dan's the leader of this church, then we are in very big trouble. We are not going anywhere good at that point in time. We're not even going in one direction. We're going like 12. We're like starting off and then I'm like, ooh, shiny thing. That's not, right? But they found a direction. Having been there, when your life is chaos, 
It is incredibly powerful for one person to come alongside you and say, actually, we're just gonna go this direction and I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk with you to make sure you stay. And when, you get when I get distracted by that, by that shiny thing that wants to pull me away from the direction that have somebody, no, actually, we're gonna keep going this way. It's incredibly powerful and it's a gift that we give each other as we follow Jesus. This is why Paul says, uh, in scripture, follow me as I follow Christ. Not because Paul is so awesome, but because Paul is saying, if you need to find out where Jesus is, I'm following him. So like, if you can't see him on your own, look at me and I'll get there. We can do that for each other. It's incredibly important that we start to recognize this and that we become attuned to the reality, if we can go to the next one, and I'm not gonna do the third one because everybody feels really uncomfortable right now. Rule of threes, if you leave the third one out, it's just like your brain and your body now is like, but what's number three? I'm not gonna tell you until next week. <laughs> I know, it's terrible, isn't it? But now you have to come or watch online. Um, one of the saddest things about the church in North America is that stories like this are still shocking to us. That we're not people that expect that like, oh, you're scared and angry and in debt, you need to go find Jesus and he'll fix you. Our churches have become places where, where this isn't our reality. Our churches aren't the cave of Adulam. Our churches aren't wildernesses where broken people find families who are leading them in the right direction. What our churches have often become, and I'm not trying to criticize us in particular, what our churches have often have become, have become refuges for people who have everything going well so that we can avoid everyone who, for whom things aren't going well. Brothers and sisters, that is nowhere near what God had ever intended us to be. If there is not room for chaotic people in our church, there is not room for God to move. And we need to ensure that we are doing that, not just in our, in our church, but in our lives. And for everyone, the most powerful thing, because I do, I'm the campus pastor. One of my roles is pastoral care. So when someone shows up and is like, my life is chaos, I'm supposed to help them. The best thing I can do with someone whose life is chaos is to say to them, here's a person whose life is not in chaos, be friends with them. And I wanna challenge some of you. If you don't have friends who are in chaos right now and you're in a place that's pretty solid, I wanna ask you if you're listening to what God has called you to do. Because if you're solid, you should probably be looking out for someone who's not. You should probably be making room in your life for someone who's chaotic. And if you're like, but I don't have any of that, God will bring them, don't worry. You stand still with your arms open long enough. God will bring you someone who needs to hear his word. So that's for the church people, for the other people who are new, who feel like you're on the outside. There are some people in this room who feel like you are the scared and the angry and the in debt. Well, I got good news for you. God doesn't plan to leave you that way. What God has planned for you is for you to be a person who benefits. He's planned for you to be his child who lives in his way and in living his way benefits everyone around you. You weren't designed for chaos. You were designed 
for peace and would ask you to take the brave step of admitting that you're scared and angry and in debt and trusting the people around you a little bit to step into the cave with us. We can go back to the beginning. Back, back, to, the back to the next slide, please. Something that interesting that happens that the, that the Bible continually reminds us of but that we continue to forget. Peter later on that book says, says to his readers, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. Once you were not a people, we as followers of Jesus need to remember that. We so often forget that we weren't a people. We forget that we were younger brothers. We forget that we were scared, angry, and in debt. We forget all of these things. We need to remember that we were once not a people, but now we are the people of God that once we had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That is what is on offer today. Not because we have it to give, but because we are people who have gathered in the place where Jesus is handing it out. If you are scared, and if you are angry, and if you are debt this morning, that is not where God wants to leave you. And I would challenge you this morning to take the brave step to come forward. We're about to go into baptism. And at its core, baptism is a public declaration that you have decided to follow Jesus. It's a simple decision that the life that I am living on my own with me in charge of it is not going well. I need to stop running my own life and allow Jesus to take hold of it and to follow him in his ways. And we've got a number of people, if you wanna come forward, We've got uh, some people today that are going to be getting baptized and have already made this decision. And if you would like to get baptized this morning, if this is a, 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 a thing that you feel God is grabbing a hold of your heartstrings right now too, then you are welcome to come forward. We've got room for you. If you're like, I don't have anything that can get wet, we have clothes for you. We, if you're like, I don't know how I'm going to get dried off, we have towels for you. We have all of these things for you to come forward and to be baptized and make this decision to move out of the world and the kingdom that you have created and into the world that Jesus is creating for you. And I promise you, I'm not going to promise you it's going to get easy quick, but I promise you that God has designed a life that is better than the one that you're building on your own. So I'd like to invite these folks to come forward and I'm gonna pray for them. And if anyone else would like to come forward as well, we can pray for you then. And if you are already a follower of Jesus right now, if you would please just raise your hands forward and pray for our brothers and sisters as well. Hey. God, we thank you for these people who have made the decision to follow you. And we declare that you are that they are yours, that they no longer belong to the kingdom of this world, that they no longer belong to the empires of this world, that they no longer belong to the kingdom of Saul, but they are now your people who are held in your hand, who are, who are your royal priesthood, who are your royal nation, and who are being called into being mighty people who build and protect everyone around them because that is what you have called us to do. 
So as they make this public declaration, I pray that, that you would continue to build them up, strengthen them, make them into the people that you have called us to be. I pray for all of us that we would be together, the family, the community, the church that you have called us to be. And that we would continue to be a place that demonstrates to this, to this city that scared and angry and in debt is not what we were created for. But there, there is another way to be in living in your kingdom and in your ways. We pray that you would impress this on our hearts and our minds. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So they're gonna go get ready. You can still come forward if you like. Just talk to Pastor Darian over there. I'm going to get ready and yeah.